Greetings and salutations. Welcome to the latest episode of the Black History Fashion Show. It's your host. It's your boy, Lester Cahill. Back after a short break where I celebrated the 4th of July, where my family celebrated the 4th of July, the Independence Day of our great country. I hope you did the same. And I hope you all are prepared to celebrate many more. Mobs be damned. So I had a great 4th of July weekend. I'm hoping that you had one too. I'm hoping that you barbecued, grilled, went fishing, went to a park, shot off some illegal fireworks. I'm hoping you did it all. And I'm hoping you're refreshed because today we have a huge subject, the life of Martin Delaney. Honestly, it would take about five episodes to cover Martin Delaney's life. We're going to just hit some highlights today and try to show you where Martin Delaney's life, his thoughts, his views are relevant to our uh, struggles today in American society. And if you're sitting there going, who's Martin Delaney? Well, that means you tuned into the right place, baby. So after the break, let's get started with Martin Delaney. Okay, before we get to Martin Delaney, I know at the end of last episode, I'd said that uh, maybe I'd do something lighter today, talk about some sports or some fashion, some elements of the culture. Sorry to disappoint you, but I'm not going to get to that today. Although I will tell you one quick, give you one little quick uh, sports anecdote. I might have shared it before, but I'll share it again in light of watching these seven and eight figure salaried NBA players cry about being in a bubble in Orlando and playing basketball in Florida. I was on a little league football team in the 1980s. I was in eighth grade, 7th, 8th grade, and uh, I was the Jackie Robinson of this league, of this particular league. Um, the city had three sports teams. I was the first black to play on any of those football teams. And so here I was on the team. We had a big game against a team from a neighboring city with a heavily black population and lots of black ball players on that team. And here we had the coach getting us fired up for the game during the week, you know, practice leading up to the game by saying, we're going to beat those niggers. Now, I really went fired up for that speech, as you can imagine. And I really couldn't believe what I heard. My friends who had, who had encouraged me to join the team were appalled as well, and I just kind of stood there after the general breakdown, and we're all supposed to go to our different position groups and practice, and I didn't. I, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't get my head around it. Eventually, my friends got me to buck up and go through the rest of practice. The coach, to his credit, I suppose, came up to me later and apologized. He didn't mean me. He meant the other team. Of course, I wasn't a nigger because I was on his team and valuable. The other blacks were, of course, the niggers. So that was the extent of his uh, apology. I told my mom after practice what had happened. And she just pointedly asked me, she goes, so you want to quit? And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm going to quit. It's a big game, but I'm going to quit. My mom would not hear of it. So my mother, a veteran of the Jim Crow South, was like, nah, 
this ain't nothing, boy. You're going to go out there and play. I think the coach went, or one of the coaches, I don't know if the coach who said it actually apologized to my mom, but I know some other coaches did because they were embarrassed. They never called the man out. As far as I know, he, they didn't do it in front of us, but I think they went and apologized to my mom. She insisted I stayed on the team. I finished off the season and played. Now, I wasn't even getting paid any money. Nobody cared. There were no records of those games as far as, I'm, as, far as I know. But, you know, millionaires crying about their conditions to play basketball and how oppressive American systems are. Give me a break. Shut up. All right, so that's sports. <laughs> Today's Black History moment, though, is, or Black History memory, let's say, is the Colfax Massacre from 1873 it occurred in the state of louisiana well in a parish i think it's called grant parish checking my notes yeah grant parish about 350 miles north west of new orleans so 1872 big election in uh louisiana big gubernatorial election you had the it was this was during reconstruction so Republicans were dominating the South, carpetbaggers to some, and the Republican candidate and the Democratic candidate, very close race, basically a tie. Both sides accused the other of fraud and of stealing the election. Highly charged, highly partisan times, 1872. And to the point where both sides started appointing local judges and officials in the different parishes. So Grant, President Grant, he sends troops to Louisiana to back up the Republican because Republican, hey, he won, right? He's saying he won. The Democratic candidate, uh, he says he won. So it all comes to a head in Grant Parish. And Grant Parish was about half black, half white, very small parish. At the time, about 500 people in it. So it all comes to a head at the courthouse because uh, as a backlash to Reconstruction, you know, you have the Klan, and in Louisiana, you had this group called the White League. And they were there, these are armed groups there to um, reinforce the old Dixie, old Confederacy, and put blacks in their place. And there was a black militia also in Grant Parish. And one of the things I'm learning as a quick aside about black history is, as I'm going back through it for these podcasts, there were a lot of armed black militias in the South. I may have to do an entire podcast about that. So, you have the Democratic guy who thinks he wins, this guy with the last name McNearney, versus the Republican Kellogg. So they both appoint or commission a judge and a sheriff for Grant Parish. And the Republican, Kellogg's, his folks get to Grant Parish first. They get there on March 23rd. And they were guarded by a black militia. And so, you know, things are getting very tense, as you can imagine. And the White League and the Klan and McNearney supporters, they arm up. They get a posse together. And they show up in uh, Colfax and they shoot it out basically for an entire day and McNearney's side wins the blacks surrender 
but even after surrendering, they're massacred. A mob appears, and we're all familiar with mobs now. So they, they surrendered, but the mob surrounded them, shot them, and hung, lynched others, right? So we don't know how many of the black militiamen were killed after the battle. The estimates range anywhere from 60 to 150. But we do know that most of the mob members got away. A few were charged, like nine were charged, but they beat the case. So that is the Colfax Massacre. It was uh, pretty much ignored until the 1920s when local officials built an, a monument to the massacre. And you'll never guess, but this monument honored the three white men who died in the attack on the courthouse. And I believe to this day that plaque still stands. Uh, it talks about the 150 blacks who were killed and but it's in honor of the white folks who charged the courthouse so mobs high stakes elections polarized electorate sound familiar yeah so black history is american history tends to repeat itself so let's get to martin delaney shall we and I know I said we were going to do it in this segment, but I'll take a break here so we can be properly prepared so you can have your earphones, your headphones ready to go. We'll talk a little bit about Martin Delaney here coming up in a minute. Okay, we're back and let's get to Mr. Martin Delaney. So Martin Delaney was born in Charlestown, what we would call West Virginia now, but it was Virginia at the time. He was born in 1812. His father was a slave, but his mother was free. So the custom at the time is that the child took on the status of the mother. So Martin was born free. His grandparents were all African. So that's how early and how far back Martin Delaney goes. He had quite a life. <laughs> As I said, it would take about five podcasts, honestly, to cover um, all of his exploits. But Martin Delaney was at different points in his life, an educator, a publisher, a medical doctor, political theorist, um, real estate, <laughs> realtor, um, explorer, novelist, publisher, philanthropist, you name it, Martin Delaney was part of it. And the backdrop that I want to give you for Martin Delaney is a quote from W.E.B. Du Bois where he said that there are two difficult sets of facts that black leaders always have to work against or work out in their leadership. And what he's referring to is integrationism, which is defined as civil rights, racial equality, and freedom versus nationalism, which is separatism, economic nationalism, group solidarity, and self-help. Martin Delaney vacillated wildly between both of those poles. There were times where 
he wrote and agitated for blacks to be given their full civil rights in the United States, encouraged blacks to participate fully in the United States. And then there was times where Martin Delaney actually went to Africa and negotiated a treaty with a, a local Af African tribe, the Yoruba tribe, I believe is the best account, for land so he could lead blacks to West Africa to start a nation there. So he goes back and forth between the two. Where his public life begins is in the 1830s is in the city of Pittsburgh. He founds one of the first black newspapers, certainly the first black newspaper with what they would have called Western America at that point, Pittsburgh, the Alleghenies, um, called The Mystery. He started the African Education Society. His great quote from that is, ignorance is the sole cause of the uh, present degradation and bondage of the people of color. Listen to that phrase. That's from the 1830s, people of color. Uh, bondage of the people of color in these United States, that the intellectual capacity of the black man is equal to that of the white and that he is equally susceptible of improvement. He went on to found the Pittsburgh Anti-Slavery Slavery Society. He, he started the Young Men's Literary and Moral Reform Society. And he inspired some white philanthropists to create a school called the Allegheny Institute and Mission Church. So this, this is the 1930s. He is at this point late 20s, early 30s. You can see he is already prolific. You can get a sense of Martin's character from a quote that he always kept at the top of his newspaper. It said, I have determined never to be governed by the frivolous rules of formality, but by principle suggested by conscience and guided by the light of reason. I love advice. I'll seek counsel, but detest dictation. So he was always known as someone who would go his own way, who would always be the counter voice to whatever the prevailing wisdom of the day was. And this leads to him kind of being looked over. <laughs> uh, he had a falling out with Frederick Douglass, who was the most influential black leader of the mid-1800s all the way till the later 1800s. So you can think of, for some of you older NBA fans out there, or basketball fans, you can think of Martin Delaney as a guy like Adrian Dantley, let's say. Dantley comes into the league, he's playing with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Dantley was a great player, but nobody heard of him because of he was overshadowed by Kareem. He's traded to the Utah Jazz. Nobody cares about the Utah Jazz, but Dantley's only notable because he's displaced by Karl Malone, and people know who Karl Malone is if, for no other reason than his awesome nickname, The Mailman. He's traded to Detroit, where he's overshadowed by the great Isaiah Thomas. And in each of those places, Dantley is kind of the odd guy out thinking himself as good as the main, you know, the marquee player. And he was good. He was very good. He was effective. But he was always the square peg in the round hole. And so nowadays, when all of these sports podcasts and writers who are lazy want to do these lists of who were the greatest players ever, you never hear Adrian Dantley's name come up, even though he had the pedigree and the statistics to back it up. He's just someone that people didn't like, he didn't fit, and they always thought he didn't know his station. So Martin Delaney is 
that guy of the 19th century. He falls out with Douglas for a couple of reasons. And one of the main reasons he falls out with Frederick Douglass is, it's ugly to say it and it's going to sound nasty to our modern ears, but he didn't think Douglas was fit to be a black leader. He thought Douglas had kind of just accepted the role or step or self-proclaimed him, uh, you know, himself as a black leader. And he didn't have that right because Frederick was a mulatto. He felt like, and the he I'm referring to here, um, Martin Delaney, he felt like he was the most qualified to be a black leader since both his parents were black. And he was second generation in the United States from Africa. And he felt like with his talent, his oratorical and rhetorical skills, that the dominant white society would not be able to say that his intelligence and his success and his drive was due to the fact that he had white blood. Now, these are the kind of conversations that <laughs> people were having in the, in the 1800s. And I'll clue you in. Some quarters, they still have them in the black community. Not, not often anymore, but I can recall them. Um, and so he felt like, hey, Freddie, step back, man. Let me do this. So obviously that was tension. He also felt that like Douglas gave too much latitude and worked too closely with racist whites. He was not down with Frederick Douglass's uh, moral suasion tactics and uh, nonviolent tactics. Uh, Martin was a little more excitable, but again, there was times he also used moral suasion and was against uh, any kind of violence. So when Martin is eulogized by his close friends, let me, let me read you the quotes that his close friends, this is what they said at his eulogy. Daniel Payne, a bishop in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, was a, a friend of Delaney's. And he extolled Delaney for his fine talents and more than ordinary attainments. That's a quote. But he goes on to say about Delaney, his oratory was powerful, at times magnetic. If he had studied law, made it his profession, kept an even course and settled down in South Carolina, he would have reached the Senate chamber of that proud state. But he was too intensely African to be popular and therefore multiplied enemies when he could have multiplied friends by the thousands. Had his love for humanity been as great as his love for his race, he might have rendered his personal influence coextensive with that of Frederick Douglass. Another one of his friends, William Wells Brown, said that Delaney had a propensity to elevate race over humanity. Um, he gives the example of how Delaney would speak, and he would say, hey, when the Quakers were about to get into a fight, the, the pacifistic Quakers were about to get into a fight, they would pull, take off their coat, put it on the ground, and said, there lies the Quaker until I whip this guy in this fight. And he said Delaney was the same way when he would go to speak to an audience. He said he would lay down any idea of elocution and rhetoric and say, remain there until I frighten these people. And there's a quote, uh, attributed to Frederick Douglass when speaking of Delaney, where he said, I thank God for making me a man simply, but Delaney always thanks him for making him a black man. So you're kind of getting the picture of Martin Delaney 
a small part of the picture, but he is someone in the 1800s who really brought to the forefront the idea that is popular now that black is a political uh, distinction or or a political term as much as it is, as it is a biological uh, distinction. He used the term, you know, people of color. He would be totally down with this BIPOC thing, this black, indigenous, and people of color term uh, that is used. It's And that used... That term is really an echo of how Delaney would speak. Delaney would talk about blacks and people of color. So he leaves Pittsburgh. He goes to help Frederick Douglass start the North Star in Rochester, New York. He was a co-editor. Uh, Frederick Douglass had heard of Delaney. His fame was growing. His skill as a, as, as a writer as a speaker, as an organizer, as someone who really cared about the uplift uh, the, um, of black folks in America. He brings Delaney to Rochester to work with him. And that lasts a few months before uh, Delaney and Douglas clash. And I gave you the reasons for that earlier. So they part company. Delaney goes on to... He says, you know what, forget this, I'm going to go practice medicine. So he gets accepted in the Harvard Medical School. He's there about a month. There was a class of three blacks accepted into Harvard. And Delaney's kicked out because the white students are like, hey, we really can't, you know, this is lowering our education. You can't have these blacks in here. This is, this is lowering the standards here. And so he's kicked out. Now from there, he goes, Martin Delaney moves from, hey, we're going to Educate and elevate the black race in America. Education is what's holding us back. We need to improve uh, our education. We need to improve our moral standard. We need to have a standard that is equal to that of whites to show that we deserve you know, our full civil rights in this, in this country as equals. This personal setback sends Martin to saying, you know what, it's not going to work out here. And in 1854, he organizes and chairs a National Black Immigration Convention, immigration with an E, uh, at that time in the early 50s, especially, and this is also, keep in mind, this is the time after the Dred Scott decision um, where blacks aren't considered the equals of whites, right? And it's decided that way by the Supreme Court. So he's really at this point set and determined on, we need to leave. And his thought was at the time, Blacks would just go and colonize the Caribbean or Central America. And because of <laughs> because we were black Americans, we would bring all of the advantages of having been in America with us. And obviously, all of those people there would just submit to our rule. <laughs> so he, he really couldn't see the, you know, uh, the hypocrisy there or the irony in that blacks were going to go somewhere and just colonize another people because obviously we were superior to them. So he leaves Harvard, or he's kicked out of Harvard. He goes to Canada. He sets up his medical practice in Canada. While in Canada, he meets with John Brown and is actually planning with John Brown a slave insurrection in the United States. But here again, the tension. 
He wants this slave insurrection, but he doesn't want the federal government of the United States overthrown. He doesn't want any state governments overthrown. He just feels as though, and he even states this, that if you are going to gain your freedom, you should be the leader of that. You should strike the first blow, as he would say. To, and that's how you would get your respect. Well, that doesn't come to, come to pass. In the late 1850s, he tours the Niger Valley in Africa. He makes a treaty with the Yoruba people there that gives him the land necessary to establish a black American settlement in West Africa. He leaves there and tours Great Britain to raise money for the project. And at the same time that he's doing all of this, he writes and publishes a serialized novel titled Blake. Uh, he writes a book-length account of his travels and negotiations in Africa called the official record of the Niger Valley Exploring Party. So he's prolific. He's active. <laughs> you know, it, it's amazing, you know, the volume of work that he um, could create. So anyway, his Africa project collapses in the early 1860s when the king of the tribe that he'd been dealing with renounced the treaty that's around 1860, right before the Civil War. By 1863, he's recruiting blacks to join the Union Army. And before we get to that, I'll just point out that Delaney seeking immigration for blacks from the states to Africa or to the Caribbean or to Central America was not, uh, that didn't put, make him an outlier. In fact, even Frederick Douglass himself, uh, Mr integration into American society, uh, the great abolitionist, um, the man, the, the best spokesman of his day for black American citizenship and how we should be folded into black, into, into American society. Frederick Douglass on the eve of the Civil War, because he was so discouraged by, by events in America and because he thought Lincoln was just going to accommodate the South, Frederick Douglass in 1861, was preparing to go to Haiti. He had raised the funds to go to Haiti and he was going to investigate Haiti as a place where blacks could immigrate to. So that is the, that is the, the backdrop and that is how despondent even someone like Frederick Douglass had become, someone who had despaired of, well, you know what, it's really not gonna work out for us here. We need to go. So on the eve of the Civil War, Frederick Douglass is like, hey, let's all go to Haiti. We can't make it here. You have Delaney's in Africa with making treaties that are, are falling through. But then a few short years later, something that I'm sure he had no expectation that he would ever be doing, he's in the Union Army, and he's recruiting blacks to join the Union Army. And the Union Army, <laughs> the Union Army itself was practicing racial discrimination. So here you have a man who is, bordering on teaching black superiority and at times he you can go read his writings and I'll, I'll recommend the book to you and at times he really states it straight out well blacks actually are superior to whites he's preaching racial superiority he's saying frederick douglas can't lead none of these black leaders can lead because they have white fathers or grandfathers only he can lead this guy in 1863 is saying, hey, come join this Union Army. 
and the Union Army was paying white privates $13 a month and paying black privates $10 a month and then subtracting $3 a month from that for clothing. They didn't do that to the white soldiers. Black soldiers were disproportionately assigned to labor roles. Few of them were commissioned officers. And even the black commissioned officers weren't paid like officers. They were making $10 a month like a black private. And it literally took an act of Congress after the war to get equal back pay for the black soldiers. At the very end of the war, uh, Delaney's commissioned as a major. So this is the twists and turns of his life, right? Let's improve, let's integrate, let's show ourselves worthy of this citizenship to, eh, let's get out of here, to, hey, let's join this army and fight for our freedom. After the war, 1876, where's Martin Delaney? He's in South Carolina campaigning for a Democrat, Wade Hampton, who was running for governor. And not just any Democrat, Wade Hampton had been a slave owner. <laughs> Martin Delaney is campaigning for him against the Republican candidate. You know, Lincoln freed the slaves. The GOP is the historical home of black people. I'm sure some of you have heard that. I'm sure some of you, you know, listen to that and hear that from, you know, some certain figures on the right who... Why don't blacks just join their historical party? Going, go back to the GOP, the home of black people in America. Is it? Well, here's Martin Delaney, 10 years after the Civil War, campaigning for a former slave owner. Because he took the man at his word. Wade Hampton went around South Carolina campaigning and stating, if you elect me, I will guarantee the civil rights of blacks in South Carolina. And if any of you white folks are out there listening to me thinking, hey, I'm going to be your pathway back to power where you can subjugate blacks again, think again, I'm not that guy. Now, whether he really was going to hold to that or not, that's how he campaigned. And as a, as a, as a white man campaigning around the state of South Carolina, to, just to even to say that, even if you're saying it as a lie and have no intent of carrying it out, that takes some guts, baby. And not only did Wade Hampton do that, he went to black areas and asked for the former slaves, the blacks there who could vote. He asked for their vote. You have Republicans today who won't go into black neighborhoods and ask for their vote. So this was enough to where Martin Delaney campaigned for Wade Hampton. It got him in so much trouble. So... Wade Hampton, uh, there's a, it wasn't Wade Hampton, it was Martin Delaney. He goes to this rural, <laughs> I want to say rural part of South Carolina. No offense to my South Carolina friends, but pretty much all of South Carolina is rural. But he goes out to uh, a Disto Island to try to convince blacks there, hey, you need to get behind Wade Hampton. And the black people were not having it. Didn't want to hear about it. Wade Hampton went out there, gave a speech. They listened to it. Yeah, whatever. Moved on. After that, here came Martin to say, yes, you need to vote. You need to get behind Wade Hampton. They booed him. They wouldn't allow him to speak. Get out of town. He's rejected by the, by the blacks there. The next day, there's a guy who gives a speech. Same town. 
saying, hey, you need, he's a school teacher, he's a black school teacher, hey, let's get behind Wade Hampton. The black people thought Martin Delaney had come back, and so they took a shot at this dude. They tried to kill him because they thought it was Martin Delaney back campaigning for Wade Hampton. They almost had a riot. The black militia took shots at this guy, tried to kill him. But that was Martin Delaney. In the 1880s, uh, some black leaders meet to celebrate the Emancipation Proclamation. It's 1883, 20th anniversary of it. And uh, so they meet. Douglas is there and Wade Hampton, not Wade Hampton, but uh, Delaney calls everyone out and says, hey, you guys are overlooking all that's happening to our people. Basically, you guys are all a bunch of sellouts. There's lynchings. We're not being allowed to exercise our rights. We're not being allowed to vote. And you're not saying enough about it. And he kind of <laughs> ruins the party. So Martin Delaney dies, 1885, the last few years of his life. He had been at looking and seeking and trying to use influence or people he knew or his connections to get a position with the federal government that will allow him to live in the Caribbean or maybe even in Africa. He was looking for a position in civil service that will allow him to leave the country. And that's how he dies, estranged from his wife of 40 years. His wife... Interesting note about her, his wife was the daughter of a, uh, black, a free black butcher from Philadelphia and an Irish immigrant. So his wife was half Irish and they were married over 40 years and had children. And he was estranged from his children, estranged from his wife at the end of his life. He, uh, like I said, he dies hoping that the American government would send him somewhere else to live out his days in peace. It doesn't happen. He dies uh, in the States. So that is, I mean, just a thumbnail of Martin Delaney's life. He's a guy, again, who's overlooked because he's a prickly pear, as people would say. He always went his own direction, swam against the tide or swam against the current. So he's paid for that in, in history. I... Um, commend to you Martin Delaney there's a uh, a good book written about him that just features his work so you can read him uh, in his own words it's called Martin, De Ar Martin R. Delaney a documentary reader it's by Robert Levine I commend it to you and you can learn about one of the giants of black leadership. So why did I spend all this time just giving you a tiny bit of information about Martin Delaney? Well, I'll wrap up the show by telling you why, why he's relevant um, to our situation today. And we will do so after this break. Okay, so we're back. We're going to jump from Martin Delaney to Black Lives Matter. So we just talked about Martin Delaney and where he stood with his peers at the time, most notably Frederick Douglass. Although there were other men there who were influential um, for Martin Delaney, notably a man named Lewis Woodson, 
a pastor, a bishop in the African-American church in uh, Pittsburgh, also known as the father of black nationalism. He would write about it under a pen name of Augustine. He was influential early in Delaney's public life. Um, Woodson was characterized, uh, like I said, the early, uh, the, the father of black nationalism. His themes were, um, you know, blacks uplifting themselves through education, entrepreneurship, you know, mutual aid to one another, proving themselves worthy of citizenship, on and on. The themes that you will hear from um, Booker, Booker T. Washington, quite frankly, you hear from <laughs> someone in Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam, too, um, on the extreme and perverted ends of it. But that's Martin Delaney. He's in that strain where we started the podcast where Du Bois just quote the, the two sets of facts that black leaders, black institutions deal with. On one end, integrationism. On the other end, nationalism. How do you work that out in the context of being in America, in the context of not having a political voice, a social uh, place most of the time with these uh, men and women we're dealing with. So here is here are the characteristics of traditional historical black leadership and black institutions in the United States. One, heavy focus on education. Education is seen as the key to improvement, to betterment, to being treated as an equal presenting yourself well, presenting yourself as an educated person on the American, if not the world stage, speak well, know what you're talking about, do well in your studies. Sometimes it's worked out as do well in your trade, have a trade, be the best welder in town, be the best blacksmith in town, be the best carpenter in town, whatever it was. If you're going to be a school teacher, be the best school teacher in town. Finish your studies. Go to school. Get as much education as you possibly could. Du Bois expressed it as the talented 10th, right? This, this elite of blacks who would be the vanguard for black progress and equality. Booker T started who knows how many schools, right? I mean, we've counted them, but he started dozens and dozens of schools, most of them technical or, or trade schools so that blacks could farm the land or go into real estate and buy the land, right? Uh, be builders, be tradesmen, be craftsmen. Get acquire, uh, acquire property and get your social respect and your civil rights respected that way. In either case, the goal was elevating yourself, elevating your race through education. Second characteristic would be moral standards. You can go all the way back to the late 18th century and into the 19th century. Blacks would create 
social welfare institutions among themselves in their community. If you were a free black and you lost your job, if you were hurt, there was no safety net for you. There was no place for you to go other than into the streets. And so blacks would help one another. Insurance. Um, <laughs> where are you going to get buried, right? What to do for if, if your husband lost his job, broke his leg. What to do if your husband ran off? Who's going to help you take care of your children, right? Anything could happen. Mobs could arise and burn down the black part of town, burn down your business. Who's going to help you? So blacks created social welfare institutions, typically out of black churches, sometimes out of um, fraternal orders, but typically out of churches. Those social insurance or social welfare programs that blacks started had a strong moral component to it, meaning if you were drunken in the streets, if you lost your job because you were late to work all the time or because you, you weren't reliable at your job or you were just a heavy drinker, you got no help. You're beating your wife, you're cheating on your wife, and that's the cause of your problems, you got no help. It was a big focus on having strong morality, a strong Christian morality. Get married. Stay married. Don't be in the streets. Don't be drinking, gambling, carousing. Be, have an upright presence in your community. Be someone who would be respectable. That's been a backbone of black leadership and black institutions since there have been black leaders and black institutions. King's speech that he gave in 1954 or 55 called We Can Do Better. Go and read that speech before it's memory hold. Go and read that speech the king gave about we can do better where he called out black people for being on welfare, for not um, exercising their intellectual facilities, not even trying or setting their standards too low for what they could do or what they should shoot for. So education, moral standards, strong moral content. And I would say the third characteristic of black leadership and institutions, the, they have an end goal. And the end goal is black independence, black dignity, black dignity, a place where black talent and work can be displayed and recognized. Whether it was within the framework or the context of America where blacks could get to this place, where we would be seen as equals, be seen as people created in God's image, people who have dignity, allowed to work, allowed to, to use our talents and our gifts and, or, and be able to display them on the stage like everyone else, or whether they saw it as, we're not going to get that here, let's get it somewhere else. There was always a place that blacks were going to get to that the leader was taking his people to, that the institution was taking its community to. We're starting here, but we're going to end up here. It was not nihilistic, we hate America, let's burn it down. That has never been a characteristic of any black leader or black institution in the United States. None that have had any legitimacy. 
the Black Panthers come along with the Black Power movement, and then you have some elements of the Nation of Islam that have had characteristics of that of like, hey, this isn't worth it. Let's all burn it down. Who cares? Burn, baby, burn, right? Especially with the Black Panthers, it was short-lived. And it really didn't have that big a following. In the Nation of Islam, you know, one of the things that attracts blacks to the to the nation of Islam is this idea of black agency and self-help. Now, again, it's perverted and it's filled with anti-Semitism and among many other problems. But what makes it attractive to a lot of blacks is it's one of the few places where they can go and hear someone say, hey, actually, you can do better. You should be doing better. You should be ashamed of yourself of where you are right now. And it kind of challenges. It's one of the places where black men go and get challenged. And so not making excuses or saying anything about it other than that. Certainly it, the anti-Semitism and there's even lunacy on par with the nation of Islam that I'm not even going to get into about UFOs and all of that. Certainly none of that is any good, but I'm just explaining to you the dynamic that pulls certain blacks into it and where it does share some overlap with the rest of, uh, black leadership, historical black leadership. So those are the characteristics of black leadership and black institutions. If you want to go and find a true, because there still are some, they're not publicized, they're tiny, and they're in localities. They're not, they don't have a national reach. They'll have a reach inside your neighborhood. This is what they're doing. They're stressing education. There is moral content to it. And there is a place where they are saying, this is where we're going to get to whether it's a metaphorical place or a real geographic place. And really the immigration, the, the back to Africa movements, those really don't exist anymore. So the geographical uh, um, uh, goal isn't part of it, but the, the metaphorical, uh, we are starting here and we're going to end up here, that's still very much a part of it. Black Lives Matter is not a black institution. Yes, it was started by three black women, but it has nothing in common with even someone who was considered a radical in his day and might even be considered a radical now, Martin Delaney. Martin Delaney did not, even when he was planning a slave insurrection, he was careful to tell John Brown he didn't want any of the state governments overthrown or the federal government in the United States overthrown. He went and campaigned for former slaveholder because he thought that that man represented the best path for, for, for black people in America to exercise their rights as Americans. The Black Lives Matter movement has more in common with the radical abolitionists of the 1800s. Not a whole lot, but if you want to look at their historical roots, it would be with somebody like, um, what's his name, Garrison, William Lloyd Garrison, who said the Constitution uh, was a covenant with death. And actually, at one point, set the, the Constitution on fire, burned up one, burned up a copy of it. If anyone out there is thinking that Black Lives Matter is, represents black people and is a legitimate black institution, you cannot square that with historical black leadership and historical black institutions in the United States. There's no moral content to Black Lives Matter. In fact, Black Lives Matter, go and read their page, their, their manifesto. They want to get rid of the family. 
Well, you can't have a black community with no black family. And the problems that plague us all stem from the breakdown of our families. The problem that, that, that plagues America in general, white communities, Hispanic communities, black communities, is a breakdown of the family. So it's not just us, as you might be led to believe by people like Candace Owens, it's not just us, it's all of us. There can be no society that functions well if the families are not functioning well. I'm sorry, school teachers, you know this as well as anyone. You can't replace the family. You can't replace home training. And it makes your classrooms difficult to manage because kids come there who don't have manners, who can't be controlled, and you are not able to teach. Well, just write that large across the United States. And that's what's being underwritten by Black Lives Matter, a total destruction of the family, a total rejection of black people's place here in America and here in you know, the Western world. So if any of you are still confused out there about, well, should I get behind Black Lives Matter? I really, you know, you are moved by the fact that, hey, we need police reform. We need criminal justice reform. Blacks get an unfair shake from police departments. Maybe not in the number of murders that, or killings of unarmed blacks, but in just everyday interactions, which I think there is evidence for. I've certainly experienced it myself. And you want to speak to that. You want to enlarge your circle. You now are looking at all of this finally and saying, hey, where can I find common ground with my black friends and neighbors and coworkers? It's not in Black Lives Matter. I've given you the most radical black leader from the 1800s. Living at a time of the Dred Scott decision, living at a time where blacks were not considered the equals of whites where they were considered animals. That man had his hope in America. It was dis- he was disappointed. He had setbacks. He had periods of disillusion. That guy on the edges of the black civil rights movement in America recruited blacks to the Union Army at unfair wages, campaigned for former slaveholders, started education societies, started moral improvement societies, motivated people to start churches in black communities. That's that guy. So when you look at that and then you look at black leadership today, Frederick Douglass, who we all revere and venerate, right? Well, his statue's defaced. You didn't hear one, one peep from any black leader. I'm still waiting. I'm waiting on Tim Scott to say something, the GOP senator. Nothing, nothing about nothing against Black Lives Matter. We are led by cowards on one side and we are uh, not led, but we are represented by cowards on one side. And on the other side, they've been bought off by the Black Lives Matter money. And that money flows to all is ideological money. So they've been silenced by ideology. They've been silenced by their own cowardice. You have to look. Long and hard to find actual black leadership in this country. And when you find it, I'm telling you what the characteristics are. Education, moral content and standards, and an end goal 
of black dignity and place here in the United States. I'm waiting for all the credentialed blacks to speak up for us. I may be waiting a long time. I may never see it or hear it. I'm waiting for all the blacks with all the PhDs and all the microphones and all the platforms to stand up and say, no, you guys don't represent us. No, we want law and order. We want it more than anybody because our communities have the most, uh, have, have the biggest problems. We suffer up from crime disproportionately. So of course we want law and order. I'm waiting for one black leader to have the stones that Martin Delaney had. To stand up and go against the tide, against the current wisdom of his day, and say, nope, that's not really what black people need right now. Waiting for that man, waiting for that woman. In the meantime, as I encouraged you in the prior podcast, if you really want to help black people, if you really want to help poor people, poor black people, there are groups, there are local groups in your area. I would suggest you go to uh, the Woodson Center. Look up the Woodson Center online. They have their finger on the pulse of many, many different organizations across the United States that are actually helping black people to have the characteristics of historic black leadership. Give them your money. Give them your time. Go find them. We have to take away the moral high ground that this Black Lives Matter occupies because they're not representing us, but they're using our plight to go at the jugular of the United States. And they're getting closer than you think. So we started with Martin Delaney. We started with the contested election of 1872, and it came down to shooting to decide that election. We're not that far off of those times. And while we wait for people to find their voice, to find their courage, to man up, if I can use that phrase. Let's be busy ourselves. Let's find institutions we can create or that we can plug into to stem this tide. And if we can't stem the tide, find something we can, that can sustain us on the other side of it. Because that's black history too. Black people created institutions against all odds. And those institutions formed great men and great women who went on to do things of world renown that helped millions of people, that inspired millions of people. It can be done. If you don't learn anything else from black history, know that you can not only survive tyranny and oppression, you can thrive during tyranny and oppression. All right, so that's our show today. I really do encourage you to go read about Martin Delaney. Some of what you read, you're going to go, this guy was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. But read it in the context of his times. Man of his times, right? (laughs) Read it in the context of his times and read it in the context of our times. Times of mayhem and absolute stupidity. All right, so... I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Thank you once again for allowing me into your headphones, your earphones, or whatever electronic device you are using 
to support us here on the Black History Fashion Show podcast. You can catch me on Twitter at Lester of Compton. Catch me where I write sometimes, Dominguez Valley Hospital blog. Look forward to your comments there. And until next time, later, homies. <laughs>